Today's episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSense, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free trial at www.streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co slash PMC. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. Thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. Do me a quick favor. If you like what you hear at Planet Microcap, please take two seconds and give us five stars on Spotify or Apple. This helps with the search engines so that more folks can also discover and engage with all things microcap stocks. Next up, the Planet Microcap Showcase Vegas happening April 30th through May 2nd, 2024 at the Paris Hotel and Casino. Save the date. We are working our tail off behind the scenes to put together the best program we can. Some really, really cool conversations with incredible thought leaders. Website is now live. And if you'd like to register to participate, please visit planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vegas. My guest on the show today is David Bakeland, head of client relations at Sumi Trust, the U.S. arm for Sumitomo Mitsui Trust Asset Management, Inc. Dave reached out to me about a month ago to see if I had an interest in doing an episode about Japanese microcaps. I got this email as I was getting geared up for our conference in Vancouver, our first event outside the US, which is just some funny irony considering our audience is continuing to look globally for quality opportunities. Needless to say, I said yes to Dave. He sent me some great materials making the case for Japanese microcaps, and I'm excited to share a conversation all about it. Thank you again for tuning in to the Planet Microcap podcast. And please enjoy my interview with David Dave Bakeland. Dave, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? Uh, good, Robert. Great, great to see you. And uh, fantastic to be on this program. You guys are a leader in this space. And I'm just delighted to be part of this. So, so thank you. Absolutely. And thank you for joining us. I mean, I was, I was, it's, it's so funny how the universe works sometimes where I was like, you know, I, I, you know, I, I really enjoy covering global microcaps and just global exposure, you know, cause a lot of our audience is looking abroad and looking at various opportunities all over the world. And I was like, you know, I hadn't really covered anything J- Japan and, you know, uh, you're, I'll get to my kind of my opening phrase there, but like, it, it just so happened when I got the email from you and you wanted to do an interview, talk about Japanese micros, was like, absolutely, like, come on in, let's do this. So, <laughs> you know, the timing worked out great. But so to kind of set all this up, you know, in, in a New York Times article back in June 24, June 14, 2023, titled Investors Are Putting Big Money Into Japan Again, Here's Why. At that time, the Japanese stock market was up nearly 30% on the bet that how companies are being are run might last. Moreover, a, uh, Mr. Warren Buffett visited Japan back in April and boosted Berkshire's investment in Japan uh, in Japanese trading houses. So I want to take a step back, you know, and and do our best to give an overview of Jap- Can you give us a, an overview of Japanese public markets and their traditional perception amongst U.S. investors? 
Absolutely. So Japanese public markets, largely the uh, collectively, they're the third largest publicly traded markets on the planet, just after uh, the collective Chinese markets and uh, very liquid uh, and more importantly, roughly equal in market cap to the GDP of the country. So roughly about uh, five trillion in uh, value at uh, the current time. Japan has been out of favor for literally decades. Um, many of your viewers are probably aware that Japan peaked in 1989, at the end of December 1989, uh, in terms of their evaluation of their indices. And at that time, Japan represented probably 40% of, of global market value. Today, if you look at MSCI ACWI, it's 5.5%. So it's, it's, uh, uh, it's shrunk as a part of the global um, market cap. And uh, it's uh, been on the back heels of many uh, U.S. investors' portfolios, largely because of poor performance for many, many years. Um, but that's changed ever since roughly 2007, when the Nikkei was down at around 7,000. Uh, today, it's around 30,000. And then it's it had a nice big bump under Abenomics when uh, former prime minister, uh, who was uh, assassinated about a year ago, wa uh, entered his second term, which was in late 2012. So uh, today, uh, the market is uh, getting a lot more attention, largely because, as you point out, Warren Buffett has made a, a bucket full of money uh, in Japan. Absolutely. But, you know, from when you talk to, you know, various U U.S. investors that, you know, now are asking you, like saying, hey, you know, why, why now? Right. Like, why, why now? Not just, you know, I, yeah, I provided all the anecdote and, you know, now there's been a little bit of a run up, of course, you know, Buffett's now adding more exposure. But what was it about this time period in 2023 or let's say even 2022 going into 2023 that sentiment changed? So there's a couple there's a couple of triggers. Uh, first was uh, perhaps uh, the perception that Japan is uh, not a country in decline, but a country that has growth growth uh, potential. And that uh, one metric that you cited is if you compare the topics, which is the Japanese equivalent of the S and P 500, to S and P 500 uh, over the last ten years. The topics on a on an inflation adjusted basis has earned uh, corporate earnings are double what they are in the S and P 500. So that's been one trigger. Second trigger has been valuations. Uh, Japanese valuations, uh, no matter what part of the market you look at, whether you look at growth or value, large or small or microcap, uh, are dramatically lower than the U.S. or Europe. Uh, and then third is maybe the growth component, which has been triggered by domestic growth, uh, corporate reforms, and then maybe the final thing that's helped push them over the edge has been the tensions between the U.S. and China and the realization that China might not be as attractive for U.S. investors for a variety of reasons as Japan is. So those have all been, I think, big triggers for U.S. investors looking at Japan. Absolutely. So then why do even still U.S. institutions have such a little exposure to Japanese equities, despite that, as you mentioned, despite that asset class out earning the S&P 500 in the last decade? Well, I, I think uh, first, maybe besides the fact of, of having been disappointed multiple times over decades, second is uh, simply there's very little publicly available research on Japanese companies in English. Um, if you look at 
the research coverage of U.S. companies uh, versus Japanese companies, uh, especially in the microcap space, uh, it's it's incredibly disproportionate. So uh, uh, in the U.S., you can find maybe on average several analysts to cover one stock. Uh, in Japan, oftentimes there are zero analysts covering, and it has the same number of publicly traded companies almost as the U.S. So uh, uh, and then multiply that by uh, another element, which is that, you know, U.S. investors have made good money in the, in the U.S. market over the last umpteen years, and they haven't had a reason to look overseas. So all of a sudden, with a weaker yen, the yen has declined by about 50% over the last, let's say, two years, uh, from roughly 100 uh, yen, uh, 103 yen to the dollar to about 150 yen to the dollar today. So that's an incredible decline, and that's largely been driven by macro developments. Absolutely. Look, I think literally every one of my friends and their mother all went to visit Japan. I think in the last, like, at least the last 12 months or some, you know, like literally go on Instagram every other week. It's, and I say this anecdotally as potentially some kind of proof of what you're saying in some sense, right? Like that, that, you know, because I think one thing that we have just when we think of Japan as, as investors and we think of, you know, growth, I mean, the one thing that always came to my mind was that this was per capita the the oldest um a, a group of people in the world right so people hear that and they're like all right well what do we do what, i don't know what do we do with this i'm not really sure here you know and so like i'm sure there's been some of those uh, some of those statistics out there that also people are like all right well how true is this growth story that dave and others probably are saying right now you know I'd love to hear your comment on that well that's a that's a great point i mean you 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 touched on a couple things one is uh, you mentioned that you and, and others uh, in your circle have been to Japan. Japanese tourism has been a huge boon to the Japanese domestic market. And the largest beneficiaries, or I should say a large number of those beneficiaries are domestic companies, companies that are domestically so focused and not necessarily export driven like Toyota or Sony and so and uh, big names like multinational names like that. I'd say the second thing what, that you touched on that uh, uh, makes me, uh, well, is worth commenting is the fact that I don't think very, very few people have had a bad experience in traveling to Japan. Service is excellent. Uh, the country is clean. It's safe. Um, Japanese go out of their way to uh, be uh, polite and respectful. And it's one place where you will never see an American flag burned. So, uh it's a it's a great feeling from a U.S. Uh, let's say traveler standpoint, and besides being incredibly inexpensive, you mentioned uh, the growth story there. I mean, Japan is the only country in the world that has literally hundreds of companies that can trace their roots back more than five hundred years. So, uh, which is just amazing when you think about it. That's Some that's, of the that's amazing. That's really isn't cool. it. Yeah. yeah, I mean the oldest the oldest company uh, that's in existence, the two oldest companies that are in existence right now can trace their roots back to the 600s and 700s in Japan. Same family. Uh, one is in the construction business, been constructing temples, uh, Buddhist temples, Buddhist and Shinto shrines and temples for that entire period of time, fifty some generations. The other is in the uh, hospitality industry, uh, what they call a ryokan or a, a Japanese inn. Uh, also in this in uh, a different family, of course, but in the same family for uh, literally generations. 
So the growth element exists in that country, and it's been uh, it's been carefully nurtured by uh, companies that have suffered through an inflated yen, um, uh, poor economic uh, uh, issues, uh, de- uh, uh, demographics that haven't been in their favor, so they've had to find ways to automate or uh, attract younger employees to their companies, and yet they've still been able to grow. So today, I, I think, and you may have already found this when you travel to Japan, is a sense of renewal, a sense of optimism, especially among the younger generations, and a belief that the future holds a lot of promise, which I think, as investors, we can all find encouraging. Absolutely. And I haven't been yet, but I do hope, uh, you know, to get out there uh, at some point in the near term. Um, so one more, one more thing to set the stage, because we're about there to get for the case for Japanese microcast, but also sure. love love to get your background as well as the, you know, the thesis for Sumi Trust, which is, uh, as I said in the in the intro here, the U.S. arm for the Sumitomo Mitsui Trust Asset Management. Great. Uh, yeah. So my background has been uh, largely centered on Japan. Uh, it started with as an exchange student many years ago, uh, studying Japanese in Japan. Then uh, working on my doctorate in Japanese history, uh, working for a Japanese bank uh, for a number of years uh, in the investment uh, uh, advisory role. And then uh, also setting up and running a arm of a U.S. investment management firm over in Japan. And then uh, uh, finally, today, I work back at a Japanese bank, different one than what I started out at. But um, in this role, our job is, and this is largely driven by U.S. institutional investor interest, is really to meet the needs of our U.S. clients. So we've seen a huge uh, bump up in demand and interest in Japanese uh, investments, and we are one of the largest Japanese asset managers. As a result, the firm decided to set up a U.S. operation several years ago, and uh, I run the team that reaches out, services clients, and also uh, prospects and meets with new institutional investors. Absolutely. All right, perfect. So the firm uh, just recently wrote a white paper titled The Case for Japanese Microcaps, if let's say that first hurdle has been completed, you know, for instance, Buffett increasing exposure in Japan. So everyone's like, okay, Japan, let me take a look. What would you say then is the firm's main thesis for why folks should not only pay attention to Japanese equities, but Japanese microcaps in particular? So, so, so we would say there's several points to this plank. Uh, the first would be Japan is. Most U.S. institutional investors are underexposed to Japan in particular. Japanese microcaps represent more than two-thirds of all the publicly traded companies in Japan. So far more as a percentage than they do of the U.S. um, market uh, environment here. So uh, number one, microcaps are a key component of the Japanese market. Number two, they're probably the best direct way to invest in domestic Japanese growth, as opposed to Japanese multinationals like Toyota and Sony and so on, who like Toyota, for example, 85% of their revenue comes from outside of Japan. So if you're investing in Toyota, you're investing in a Japanese name, but you're not investing necessarily in the growth in Japan. Whereas investing in different Japanese companies that are uniquely focused on growth elements of the Japanese market, which happy to share 
uh, later at some point. Um, that really is where you're going to get the best domestic bang for your buck. And then I'd say looking at simple metrics, uh, Japanese microcaps are more attractively priced and have, I would say, a better short-term and middle-term opportunity for U.S. institutional investors. Very good. So the similar question that I asked earlier, you know, why U.S. institutions basically have overlooked Japanese equities in, in general. You know, it's kind of a similar question when it comes to Japanese microcaps. You know, even as more and more microcap investors are looking globally, why has Japanese microcaps been overlooked despite being the largest component of uh, global microcap indices? So um, that's a that's a good point. And, and I touched on this a little bit earlier, but just to give you some more precise data, you know, in the U.S., according to what, what we're aware of, uh, the average large cap stock is covered by more than 18 analysts on average. In Japan, that number is more like 14. On the microcap side, the U- average U.S. microcap is covered by almost three analysts on average, whereas in Japan, the average microcap is covered by less than one half of one analyst. In other words, the coverage is very, very abysmal. And that that includes... Japanese language coverage as well as U.S. language coverage. If you factor out the Japanese language covered coverage of Japanese microcaps, you're left with almost zero coverage of Japanese microcaps by the sell side in the U.S., which means that U.S. institutional investors don't normally have a talking point to think about other than going to publicly available like Yahoo Finance and Googling things. But often that leaves out the essence of the story. And so U.S. institutional investors miss out on that opportunity. I, you know, another thing I'd also argue, I mean, look, that uh, coverage is always something even amongst U.S. micro. You said three. I I, I'm, I was surprised to even hear that for an average U.S. microcap. I'd argue it's probably even lower. Um, but uh, another thing, too, when you, when I think about just, just looking in the region, right, you know, you have a lot of Chinese-based companies that are listed on NASDAQ and listed, you know, microcap Chinese companies listed on NASDAQ, you know, maybe cross us on the OTC, maybe have a Hong Kong listing, you know, and maybe this is just my own naivete or just haven't seen it or just hasn't come in my, my, my universe. I don't know how else to say it, but yeah. I mean, you also just don't see a lot of Japanese cross listings, you know, cause that's one way to get some kind of us exposure, at least amongst investors that might maybe are looking globally. Look, there's a lot of sophisticated microcap investors listening to this right now. I'd be like, listen, I don't need a Japanese company to cross list. Like I, I know what I'm doing to find it. Right. Yeah. But, but at the end of the day, we're talking about, you know, it probably the larger swath of folks that just, wouldn't even think to start or or know where to start looking at them. So they might turn to a cross-listing and say, hey, okay, like, all right, I, there's a cross-listing here, like it's on OTC or something like that, you know, or even one of the other one of the other exchanges to get some more information. So it seems like there's this, uh, um, an information gap compared to maybe some other countries in the region uh, that it's just missing, you know? So I'd lo- love to hear more on that. That's a great point. I'd, I'd say that investment banks have ignored Japan, and that's why you don't see a lot of um, uh, ADRs, Japanese ADRs. Um, I mean, you can find them. Uh, they exist. Uh, the largest holding in the MSCI World Microcap Index is Kenwood, which does have an ADR. Uh, and But I would argue that even that's though that's in the microcap index, and even though we may think of it as a 
a microcap stock from market cap uh, as if we compare it to U.S. microcaps, which is, you know, makes it roughly about a billion U.S. Uh, for most Japanese microcaps, uh, when Japan thinks of microcaps, they think of companies with market caps below 300 million. So uh, I'd say that is the real, uh, the investment, the lack of investment banking interest and the lack of, um, uh, let's say, research coverage is really probably the, one of the biggest reasons why you can't find those cross listings. But you can find some. Uh, it's just that those won't necessarily be the microcaps. Those will be the larger publicly traded entities that we're all familiar with. Right. So that, that makes most sense. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, but yeah. But I mean, is there a way to access that for real uh, for uh, let's say retail investors? I mean, for retail investors accessing uh, Japanese microcaps on an, a direct basis, I think is incredibly difficult. Um, it's you know uh, again. Leave aside the research issue and leave aside the uh, uh, the currency issue. You still have a, an issue of you know who makes markets in those. Most of those microcaps only have market makers that are Japanese entities, and these are uh, tend to be um, you know domestic uh, domestic focused or uh, firms that have maybe uh, offices in greater Asia, uh, such as Hong Kong um, or Singapore. But uh, but do not necessarily have offices in the U.S. So, no, absolutely, and that that all makes a, a ton of sense there. I mean, you know, it, it, another question I have regarding Japanese microcaps. I mean, give give me a better sense of the universe. You know, how many right now are there? Sure. And and what's kind of the main industry? You know, is it more on the growthy side? Also, you know, are we talking more like pre rev biotech that kind of stuff? I, I'm I'm assuming it's not, but like. You know, love, love to hear a little bit more in terms of the actual kind of structure of the asset class. So great, great question, Robert. And so, so first, I would say on um, on the components, on the sectors that Japanese microcaps tend to be focused on, information technology and healthcare are probably two of the biggest. Uh, 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 information. Right, I, I take back my comment on biotech. Then, <laughs> my yes, right, right. but but uh, I mean. You won't necessarily find a lot of the biotech companies, but you will find uh, a lot of companies that are tied into, uh, let's say, the aging demographic in Japan. So, for example, um, homes that uh, cater, or, or I should say, entities that cater to Japanese elderly healthcare, um, or Japanese um, hospice, uh, or um, uh, uh, firms like that. Firms that cater to robotics or some of the uh, other areas that Japanese have a direct need because their population has been shrinking. And uh, those uh, those tend to be, again, very, very domestically focused. Uh, certain robotics companies haven't yet made their way outside of Japan yet, which is amazing to me because some of those robotics are just incredibly cool. I've seen some of those demonstrations firsthand by those companies in Japan. And it's always amazing to me that these companies are not, I don't know, uh, uh, have don't have offices yet in the US or Europe or, or uh, outside of Japan. Um, and then I'd say the, uh, the answering your question about how big is the, is the market. So if there are roughly 4,400 publicly traded companies in Japan, uh, roughly 3,800 of them are micro caps. In other words, trading below $300 million in market cap. And uh, 
the Japanese IPO market is very different than the U.S. It's been very robust, believe it or not. But oftentimes, these are companies that are largely family-owned, largely have been around on average for 30 years before hitting the public markets. Very different than the U.S., where you'll find companies that have been aggregated by a new founder and his team, or that have come up as at the at the spark of uh, some young. Uh, uh, Techno wizard uh, who just graduated from Harvard or Stanford. So I think I think that's a that's a big difference between Japanese microcaps and U.S. microcaps in terms of the longevity and the and the history behind those companies, as well as some of the sectors that they focus on. Absolutely. So can you also compare the performance of Japanese microcaps versus U.S. microcaps in the last five, ten, twenty years, and why is this the case? Yeah, good question. I mean. Year to date depends on whether you're investing, uh, whether you invested at the beginning of the year and whether you're, you have yen exposure or dollar exposure. Uh, the yen has weakened against the dollar as, as, uh, we talked about earlier. And that has hurt U.S. institutional investors who have invested in Japanese microcaps before now. In other words, if you invested in January of 2021 when the yen was at 103 and uh, today it's one almost 150, 149 and change. Uh, you've been hurt simply by the movement of the yen as opposed to the underlying uh, performance. But generally speaking, performance has been better for U.S. investors in U.S. microcaps than Japanese microcaps, and uh, that's been uh, it's it's also been partly because the market has been more focused on value, especially over the last several years. Uh, so Japanese microcaps have underperformed fairly dramatically uh, over the last uh, decade as well, uh, which is really surprising. Uh, so as uh, uh, even though you can find companies, uh, the, this is a specific example, that have a dividend yield of close to 5%, a PE that's under 10, and a growth rate of uh, double digits, and an ROE uh, almost 20%. So, like, where do you find those kind of companies that are trading at and trading below book value? Um, so, where do you find companies like that? Right, pretty much the only place is Japan. Um, and uh, if if we look at that a little bit deeper, um, we we can realize that a, a lot of these names, again, simply haven't gotten the attention of outside investors because they haven't had a need to. They've often uh, been very very frugal in terms of their management. And so a lot of these companies have a ton of cash on the books. There's some companies, one company, for example, Kians, which has enough cash on the books, it doesn't need to earn a dime for 17 years and can still pay its employees and pay all of its bills. Where would you find a company like that in the US? So this is these are some of the remarkable things when investors start digging that they that they turn up. Absolutely. By the way, real quick, just to get some disclosure out there. So, uh, you know, for our compliance and I'm sure for yours as well, uh, yeah. you mentioned Kians is the, does the fund, uh, have a position in, in that company? We do not. Yes. Okay. So then you- I won't mention any of the names that we have a position in, and I won't mention any of the, anything about our fund in particular, simply to uh, stay on the right side of uh, regulators and my own chief compliance officer. Fair enough. That's good. Yeah. Kenwood too. I think you also mentioned as well. Earlier, That's correct. So. Yes. We do not have a position in that. So, uh, but, uh, yes. So, so, uh, 
Uh, but yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to uh, cut you off there. No, no, no. All good. Look, we gotta get, we gotta get the we gotta get the disclosures. Sure. Right? We gotta, yeah, you know what I'm right. But you know, I I know you know not to talk you know the specifically about you know various holdings in the portfolio. But I you know I think we've set the stage pretty good here where we said about the opportunity. Why Japanese microcaps? You know, some folks might be listening to this and say, hey, okay, like I want to take a deeper dive, but, you know, what are some of the criteria maybe I should be looking for to avoid maybe some of those red flags that are out there within the Japanese market that we might not just be aware of? So, I mean, for for the funds for purposes for Sumi Trust, you know, what would you say is some of the criteria that you you guys have when assessing potential Japanese microcaps for the portfolio? So uh, I would say for our, so you can take a lot of different approaches to Japanese microcaps. One would be a value tilt and one would be a growth tilt. Um, we tend to lean on the growth side of things. Um, and I would say uh, the reason for that is the, because there are sectors that are fast growing in Japan that are really domestic focused, as I mentioned earlier, healthcare. Another one would be education, for example. Uh, another one would be services that are uniquely Japanese, for example, supplying um, meals that are Japanese meals. Uh, uh, the Japanese term is bento. Uh, you're probably familiar with that term. Uh, bento boxes for elderly that are custom made and, and custom delivered. Or there are eBay equivalents in Japan that focus on certain collector segments, for example, collecting watches. Um, all of these are really uniquely Japanese segments of the marketplace. Some of them may not have transferability outside of Japan, or they may, uh, depending on how things go. I mean, who would have guessed that sushi would be a worldwide phenomenon um, that you can find even today in small villages and small towns, not only across America, but, you know, Europe, Africa, uh, and the rest of Asia. So, um, so anyhow, long story short is uh, the... Um, the we look at we look at the growth component and we look at those underlying segments. Some of those are theme driven, and some of those, uh, but all of those are driven uh, ultimately by one-on-one -on -one meetings with the actual management. Oftentimes, these managements are uh, very lean. Um, they're of course Japanese. Um, some of these uh, some some managements in these Japanese firms, quite a few of them actually may not speak much English, even though almost every well-educated Japanese has had a number of years of English, but it's kind of like us with Spanish. Um, a lot of us have taken Spanish uh, in school, but uh, we probably wouldn't be able to conduct a business meeting in Spanish. So long story short is we look for those companies that are undercovered, that do not have uh, sell-side advocacy in most cases, and that have uh, a growth component that is largely ignored by the market. So we're looking for those undiscovered names. Uh, that's what we look for. And I think that's there's there's so many of those names that uh, almost uh, you could throw a rock and 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 hit uh, a bunch of those uh, without uh, working too hard. I was just going to say, I mean, for uh, an asset class that has one half of one half of a percent of them have any kind of or one half of one half of one on average, uh, analyst coverage. And, yes. uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm just give me a number, like how many Japanese microcaps are there right now today, Dre? So there's, there's uh that's a good question. I don't know the answer to how many Japanese analysts, but, um, they're not uh, analysts, but actual issuers. Like in the U S for instance, we have, yeah. I mean, that number fluctuates a lot, or I'll just say North America, let's say 
11,000, right? You know, it's big. Yep. Big spots. So, so. So, so the Japanese securities industry has uh, technically 400 entities that are members. Um, that includes foreign firms uh, such as, you know, um, Merrill Lynch and so on and so forth. Uh, out of those, uh, the the domestic issuance market is really dominated by, let's say, Nomura, Nikko, Daiwa, and then uh, Goldman, JP Morgan have uh, uh, roles in there as well. But the uh, there's a whole number of these small regional securities firms, some of them very small. Um, and uh, when I say very small, I mean like, you know, five guys or whatever. And that have been around in some cases for literally decades, like family-owned businesses, and uh, yet they'll they'll maybe do one offering every couple of years. So um, they 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 they're usually working with with firms that don't need to tap into the capital markets as often as they'd like. Some of these, of course, trade by appointment. Liquidity is always an issue in some of these microcaps, as they are everywhere in the world, um, and so. Uh, uh, the number of issuers, though, the big issuers, there's only really three to four big issuers in Japan, and they dominate the market, but especially at the larger size of the market. And the microcap, it's it's really a scramble. And then, again, most of those names, when they place those names, uh, tend to get placed in, as they would in the U.S., safe hands that they can trust. So, again, not uh, often available or accessible to non-Japanese investors. So, so my, my final question for you, David, and and feel free to tell me to screw off with this question, but no, not at all. In in the U.S., you know, amongst us microcap investors, you know, one, we always have like our we have our Mount Rushmore of some of these U.S. microcaps that any microcap investor who's been around investing in the last 20, 25 years are like, this is why we do this. Like these are the outsized gains that we can actually that we can, you know from the monster beverages of the world, right to the expels. You know, that, yes. you know, if you found them early before the crowd, like you are just nice, you know, if you held it, of course, um, full disclosure, I'm not a shareholder, unfortunately, uh, or wasn't that or anyways, not, not a, a shareholder, but, um, what would you say is that, that, you know, it, I don't know if it's one or, or two, you know, what is there, can you give us an example of a Japanese microcap that, you know, 10, 15 years ago was clearly a Japanese microcap, but then now is you know, exploded amongst the ranks to small, small, mid, large cap that most, you know, local or folks that follow Japanese microcaps are like, this is why we do this. So absolutely. So I'll give you one just for this year. So a year ago, there's a company called Toa. Uh, ticker is Japanese tickers are numbers. Uh, this is 6315. Um, so you can look it up under Yahoo Finance. Uh, this is in the MSCI World Microcap Index, and so uh, it's not one of our holdings. And this is a company in the semiconductor space. This stock was trading at roughly 1,800 yen uh, a year ago, last September or last October, and today it's almost 5,000 yen. Uh, so it went from roughly 240-some million market cap to almost 750 million market cap uh, over the course of one year. And actually, most of that has been year to date. So uh, now that's that's a beneficiary of the, um, you know, everyone's focus on semiconductors and the opportunity there. But that's just one of many examples. Uh, there's 
Um, I mean, it, one can look at all different areas. Some of the names in the value space have also had a nice run up. Um, that's largely been because the Japanese government um, under the umbrella of the Japanese stock exchange, JSX, which controls the Japanese publicly traded markets and is itself a publicly traded company, have mandated that Japanese, all Japanese companies need to boost their price to book ratio up to at least one in order to remain listed by the end of March 2025. In other words, uh, and some of these companies, like for example, uh, just to name a real obvious one, one of the big television stations, Fuji TV, still trades at only 36% of their book ratio. And these these book ratios are uh, often understated because in Japan, you keep um, most of your assets at the lower of price uh, or, uh, in other words, cost or uh, uh, current value. So if, if a company's been around for 100 years, and some of these microcaps have, or even 50 or 60, and they own land at priced at values 60 years ago, uh, you can see where there's a lot of opportunity. So anyhow, um, but uh, so there's been quite a few of those, but uh, I just bring up TOA just because it's it's a prime example of what's been going on this year. Very good. All right. Well, Dave, you know what? I think I think we're there. I think we covered a lot of great information here today for folks that maybe are just kind of getting their start and or interested in wanting to get their feet wet and just better better understand Japanese markets in general. And then, of course, Japanese microcaps. So, I mean, final thoughts. Is there anything that you'd like to, uh, you know, let our, leave uh, leave our audience here for for uh, before uh, before I let you go? No, I would just say I would just say overall, Japan's a great place, as you pointed out. Uh, even if you have no intention or no interest in investing, I would definitely recommend a visit. You will not go home disappointed. Uh, uh, and uh, right now, the prices are some of the cheapest that they've been in decades. So um, uh, hopefully I will see you and or your family and or some of your viewers uh, over in Japan in the not too distant future. I would absolutely love that. So Dave, with that, where can our audience go and find more information about Sumi Trust and to potentially get in contact with you? Uh, they can, uh, if they Google Sumi Trust or if they uh, want to connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, very happy to help them in any way, shape or form. Uh, we're, we're based in Midtown Manhattan and uh, love to chat with anybody, if only to be a resource and an, an advocate for investing in Japan. Very cool. Well, Dave, thank you so much for joining me today. Really do appreciate it. Good luck. Stay safe. And I look forward to our next update. Thank you, Bobby. Great chatting with you. Thank you. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast podcast.